You're listening to Tail Chase. We recorded this episode a couple seasons ago with a fellow falconer and dog breeder, Jim Krieger. We talked about some hunts that had just happened, as well as the birds we were flying at the time, and some of the antics that we got into in those said hunts. In these crazy and uncertain times, we hope everyone is safe, and we appreciate your ear and support. Hope you enjoy this episode, and thank you for listening. Listening to the Tail Chase podcast. My name is Nick Mazzara. I'm Graham Scarborough. And I'm Jim Krieger. And what are we doing here, guys? Uh, well, we just got in uh, after a day of hunting and uh, hawking with our uh, red tailed hawks. And hawking for you uninitiated out there is taking wild game with a raptor. And that noise you just heard there is Graham's freshly trapped red-tailed hawk that is on a perch behind me uh, over our left shoulder here. And uh, obviously you kind of know a little bit about me and Graham. Jim is a friend of mine from down in Springfield where uh, I live down there now. And We've flown together a few times. This is the first real time we've gotten in a whole lot of hunting. And his bird caught its first head of game today, which was just a giant of a fox squirrel. Biggest squirrel I've ever seen. <laughs> we certainly don't have them like that down in southern Missouri. Oh, they grow them big in this part of the state. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. This county doesn't have much, if any, gray squirrels. I, in the 10 years I lived here, I never saw one. And that's almost all we have down around Springfield. Yeah, mm -hmm. I would say probably 90% grays. Yep. And so his bird caught a, a real big squirrel, and then my bird caught its first rabbit today after chasing some quail, which was pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you don't, uh, especially these days, it seems like you don't see quail all that often in Missouri, but when you do, it's always a treat. Yeah, and we've, we've managed here at the farm uh, for quail for a number of years, and never really had good numbers. Covey here and there, you run into birds every once in a blue moon. This year has kind of been an exception. I'd gotten into them last month and killed one bird out of the covey. We got them up again today. I'm sure it's the same covey, and there was more birds that now, whenever I saw them yeah, a month ago. Yeah, it seemed like, I don't know, do you think, 12 yeah i thought a dozen or so yeah 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 that's a strong covey yeah that's a good covey anywhere especially for this part of the state you just mm -hmm. you just don't see that many birds yeah and kind of uh, well a little bit later in the year you mm -hmm. know i mean you might see uh i don't know when i was living in washington i know with huns you'd see coveys of 15 birds in the in like September, but by the time December, January, February rolled around, it'd be like down to eight, hmm. you know, because they just, it's a hard life out yeah. there. They get picked off or, um, you know, things happen to them. Sure. But to see a good, good sized covey that this late in the year, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love seeing them. They're fun, fun to be around for sure. And we started off the morning before we got the birds out, doing a little bit of coyote hunting, which was cool, and called in a pair, which was really neat to see that. They were right in our faces. and Yeah, they came in quick. <laughs> there wasn't any time to think about it. No, no, which was unfortunate because we could have definitely doubled up if we would have had a little bit more wherewithal in the setup. But it was cool. We ended up taking one, which was the first coyote I've ever killed that didn't have mange, which... It was a beautiful animal. Yeah, it was cool. And I love seeing them. I have mixed emotions about shooting them, but man, hunting them is, is a fun thing to do for sure. And, and so you saved the hide, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. You're going to tan it and everything? That's the plan. I've always kind of wanted to have one to admire and look at on the wall. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I'm going to end up doing. I know the fur prices are pretty decent on them right now, but I don't really have any interest in doing that, even though it is a a late season good coyote mm-hmm. big female nice did you weigh it by chance i didn't no. i didn't i don't what, know what what is a big coyote do you know i i don't know 30 pounds 30 pounds big? would be a, a real big one yeah mm-hmm. there's i think most of them are around 20 25 is a is a really it's a good one it was a pretty good sized animal yeah, yeah. it's and the shot he made on it was really impressive. It yeah. was 140 yards running, um, and it, he just he rolled it. Yeah. It was really, really neat to see. Only after I missed my first shot at 80 yards with yeah. a Well, I, I wasn't going to tell on you. <laughs> no, I got lucky. She was, she was going at a pretty good clip, though, and I just happened to, like I said, get lucky and drop her. Mm-hmm. And so then, t- tell me about the squirrel hunt uh, with the with Jim's red tail because I, you know, I wasn't there for that. But uh, how'd that go? Well, uh, like I said, we're up here in Maryville, and I lived up here for ten or so years, and flew every one of them. And there was only one year that I didn't fly a red tail; I flew something else. So I am pretty familiar with the spots that are around that have ready access to rabbits and you and I Graham have flown a lot here together and I took Jim out to one of our old haunts one of the spots that uh, you and I have caught a handful of rabbits at and we were I mean I was very impressed with the numbers I think within maybe five minutes I had four (laughs) rabbits up Wow, (laughs) which is dang good for this area. There was no shortage of bunnies that's for sure. No and so I I mean, we we turned his bird out, and he went up in the tree a little ways, and he got a couple chases in, mm-hmm. and just the, I think the very first one, he just got caught up in the brush. He went; it wasn't one that he checked or anything. He went to ground on it, tried to tried to slam it and and get his feet on it. But the area that we're uh, that we were hunting with Jim's bird today has a lot of understory. So like growth that's, oh, I don't know what, probably three feet tall. Yeah, and most mostly coral berry, shrubby stuff that's not particularly thorny, but it is thick, and mm-hmm. you're right, about three feet tall. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And so when a bird comes in to grab a rabbit, you know, they can run fine along the ground, but that stemmy stuff, it's kind of like a little miniature tree mm-hmm. almost, real thin, spindly little trees, and they come in, and that stuff kind of catches their wings and slows them down. And so that rabbit was able to squirt out from underneath him 
as he came in to grab it. And we had, what, a couple more chases? He kind of chased something mm-hmm. up the way a little bit. Yeah, I seemed to be getting more and more excited uh, as the hunt went on. And I, you know, I really thought that, you know, the bird was going to put it together and connect to a, to a cottontail. I sure was not expecting the, the squirrel to happen. <laughs> you know, it, it, I heard the, the tail bell on the squirrel or on the, uh, on the bird. So I thought it was just moving up to catch up with us. And next thing I know, it lands in the tree about two foot from this, uh, this ginormous squirrel. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, they both froze and I froze and I don't think any of the three of us knew exactly what to do at that moment. Uh, and I, I was a little ways away and I just hear Nick. <laughs> yeah. And I was, I didn't know what he was saying. His bird had pitched up a ways up into the tree. And so I was thinking, oh, he was making a comment on how, you know, that the bird was up in the tree, which was a good thing. And that I was going to flush or flush a rabbit out from underneath it. Not that he was not sure what to do about a squirrel. Yeah, no, that squirrel was so big. I, I was trying to make up my mind real quick whether or not I wanted to encourage this to happen or, or discourage it from happening. And anyway, they made up their mind before I did, and so there was nothing I could do about it at that point. But it was a short chase. The squirrel uh, hopped tree to tree and then went to ground, and once it hit the ground, it was that was the end of the story. Mm. I've heard that fox squirrels are more prone to do that than grays. Like they'll they'll bail out and run mm-hmm. along the ground, which is kind of suicide uh, for them if a hawk is after them. I've had them bail out of the tops of fifty and sixty. I mean, I don't even know how tall the trees are around here, but tall, mature walnut and stuff, mm-hmm. where they'll bail out the full top and hit the ground running. They're their hide is so tough they're able to take an incredible beating oh i skinned that thing i know (laughs) (laughs) Uh, one of the things that uh is a consideration with fox squirrels and why jim was a little nervous about that is unlike a rabbit they have some tools and the wherewithal to kind of fight back against the bird and they can injure the bird i had um, a red tail that i was flying when i was in high school that almost severed a tendon on one of her toes from a squirrel bite bad enough where I mean she was bleeding pretty darn good and Jim's bird ended up getting bit on the wing a big enough squirrel that it was resistant being controlled by the bird and uh, nothing serious I don't think it even broke the skin or anything I think she no I think it just had a mouthful of feathers yeah yeah it was a pretty it was a pretty cool flight the squirrel kind of panicked because Jim was at the base of the tree and there was a hawk in the same tree as it and it tried to get above the bird and then uh, the bird took a swipe at it and missed wheeled right back around and the squirrel jumped from one tree to another and then I think the bird actually grabbed it at that point and wasn't able to hold on to it and the squirrel kept going and tried to go to the ground and that's when uh, your bird was able to capitalize and hold on to it enough for you to get over and help it out awesome yeah awesome it was a good flight for yeah sure. fox squirrels definitely make me nervous uh, they can <laughs> they can mess them up well they i can tell you from experience they make jim pretty nervous too <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i i kind of made a rookie mistake and <laughs> and i uh i didn't take my gauntlet with me which is uh if you don't know, that's the the large heavy glove that a falconer wears on the uh, on the hand that it ca- that he carries his bird. But the uh, 
my <clears throat> my wife's dog chewed up the gauntlet that I like, and so I, I only had uh, an old stiff one that wasn't very comfortable to wear. And I thought, well, I don't I don't need this, you know, because I thought we were just after cottontails. I didn't I didn't know I was going to be grabbing hold of a ginormous fox squirrel. Well, and you had gloves on, but the just like leather work gloves. Yeah, they were just garden gloves. They mm-hmm. weren't. Uh, weren't anything designed for what we were doing which i mean to be fair you've handled your bird with that many times and not had any issues but yeah but i also didn't have a four pound squirrel <laughs> in my head <laughs> yeah so when jim made made in which is the term that we use whenever we ap- approach the bird after it has grabbed on to a piece of game piece of game a, a game animal <laughs> a game animal there you go uh Jim made into the bird, and whenever he did so, he was trying to dispatch the squirrel because... Uh, well, as quickly as possible. Right. So, you know, to prevent injury. Prevent injury, and you don't want the animal to suffer either. Sure. And, and a squirrel is a tall order for a bird to kill. They're, it takes a, a significant amount of time, minutes, for that to happen. And if you can end the animal's life in seconds, that's what I choose to do most of the time. Same thing with rabbits, but squirrels are particularly uh, important to do that with because of the risk that it poses to your bird. So he uh, made in and tried to dispatch the squirrel and ended up getting footed pretty good uh, through the glove and (laughs) asked me to help him. And I'm sitting there barehanded like, I'm not sticking my hand anywhere near what you got going on, man. I'm not sure I was asking. (laughs) Now, real quick, what do you mean by he got footed, just for people who don't know? Okay, so when you're handling raptors, a lot of people think the bite is what you got to worry about when Mm -hmm. you you have somebody that's unfamiliar with them. And getting bit isn't any fun, but it's not any real threat to you. Right. They can break the skin, but eh, it, it doesn't hurt that much. And it's pretty quick. One and done. And Usually. Now, yeah. with certain types of birds, they kind of hold on like a pit bull, which Graham <laughs> certain seems to have an affinity for. But yeah. uh, footing is when a bird uses its feet, which are tipped in pretty darn sharp talons, to grip you. And they have a, an interesting, almost ratcheting type system of tendons in their feet. And so even though they're a small animal, small-ish, you know, they only weigh, what, less than two three? Pounds. Two pounds. Yeah, under three pounds. Yeah. They're able to produce an incredible amount of force in their feet, where if mm-hmm. they grabbed your bare hand, it'd go in one side and out the other mm-hmm. without any real trouble. And so that's what you really got to watch out for and be careful with, and that's why a falconer wears the glove that he does, because they they can really cause some serious hurt, as Jim found out today. <laughs> Indeed. Well, and while he was in pain, he tried to hand me the fox squirrel, which was still half alive. <laughs> I didn't feel <laughs> too keen on holding on to that sucker until it was Well, dead. I had my hands full at the time, so I feel like a little help would have been appreciated. <laughs> I, I eventually, once he was able to get the squirrel killed, um, took it and help it, helped out and... We worked it out, but it was a little bit of an exciting moment there for a little bit. Not sure exactly how to handle it. And that's one thing, you know, if you're unfamiliar with a certain type of game species and you've got a new bird and things kind of happen fast and you're in pain, 
man, I, I totally understand your reaction, not being able to, I mean, collect your thoughts and oh, say, sure. okay, this is what needs to happen to alleviate this situation. I've been there many times, you know, it, well, you know, things happen fast when you're, anytime you're hunting, you know, whether you're rifle hunting deer or, or duck hunting or, or whatever, you know, you try to, you have a certain picture in your mind of how things are going to go. And sometimes it comes close to that. And then sometimes it doesn't, mm -hmm. uh, you know, anything can happen when you're hunting, but with, with falconry, uh, you know, the, the odds are exponentially greater that things are not going to go the way that you have in mind. Yeah. There's just too many variables. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Murphy's Law is definitely at play. Yeah, I, I read recently that uh, that Murphy must have been a falconer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's probably right. Yeah. Yeah, and it, yeah when, you're, um, when you're playing in nature and then you're trying to get nature to cooperate with you, Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. flushes don't go the way that you think. An animal goes the opposite direction that you'd like it to, which you can't blame them. It's their life, you know, that they're mm -hmm. trying to do everything that they can to survive. That's what makes it so fun. If they just laid down and said, here, eat me, Mr. Hawk, I'm ready. That wouldn't be any fun at all. I don't know. There's days I wish that would happen. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely been there, man. It's I've been hunting with this bird for little over a week we caught a rat which i mean <laughs> i'd count it it counts as a first set of game i guess but definitely not what we were after and it was kind of a harrowing experience in and of itself bird was able to carry it off so when when you're out hunting obviously like we just said you can't control everything and if it if a bird catches a mouse which is honestly what they're excuse me what they're catching most of the time out in the wild, that's kind of what a lot of birds make their living off of is mice and voles and rats and stuff, is it's easy, easy pickings for them. But if they eat a mouse, it doesn't feed them enough to where they want to leave or that it puts it in je you in jeopardy of losing the bird. A rabbit or a squirrel definitely would be a big enough meal that would be a problem if your bird got a hold of it away from you but they can't carry it it's too heavy they aren't able to fly off with that now a rat they can fly off with and it's a big enough meal to be dangerous where mm -hmm. the, where if they ate the whole thing away from you they might be just full enough to say you know what i'm not so sure about this whole being around people thing mm -hmm. and leave yep and my bird crashed into a brush pile from out in a, at the top of a tree. I make my way over there, and when I get in eyesight of the bird, she takes off with this rat flying away from me into some thick, nasty brush and ended up having to fish her out of there. Luckily, she cooperated and was able to go home with her on my glove, which is always a good feeling. Yeah, and certainly something that uh, can't be said for every hunt. Mm-hmm. Yep. Graham, will you pat um, your bird down? Uh, well, <laughs> there's really not much I can do at this point. So why is your bird on that perch, Graham? Uh, so what we're doing is this um, process called waking. And um, my understanding is when you have a new bird... 
uh, out of the wild, or or it could be captive bred too. A- anything besides an imprint or something that you raised from a chick, anything with some sort of fear of humans. Um, there were basically two schools of thought. There was like the, uh, I guess I th- what I want to call the Arab school and the European school. And the European school um, was a very gentle, very slow approach. Like you have this new bird that's um, terrified of humans and so you um, only handle it in like dim light, which their reaction to darkness is to kind of calm down because their nighttime vision is not as good as ours. Their, their vision's more acute than ours, but in terms of peripheral vision and nighttime, they are at a disadvantage. So their, their instinct is to calm down. So like they might train a bird at first by like candlelight. Um, whereas the Arab school might use a process called waking. And that is where you keep the bird in your presence as long as it takes until the bird falls asleep. And once that bird falls asleep, what that means is is he <coughs> has accepted your presence and decided, okay, this person has not tried to eat me yet, and I am so tired that I just have to close my eyes, which means that they have to trust you. And that's really what a lot of the um, partnership between you and your uh, hawk or falcon or eagle is about is trust. So what we're doing is we got her on this perch and we're just around her um, all day, 24-7, milling in and out, dogs coming in and out. Uh, We're going to eat dinner by her. Um, We're doing our podcast by her. So she's just under constant human exposure and uh, supervision. And as a result, she will be acclimated to um, humans and the whole training process much more quickly than if we were to go with a more traditional, slower route. Gotcha. So that's like a long explanation for a very simple question. No, no, I I like it. That explained it very well. And that process of acclimating a bird whether it be the slow process or the, the quicker or more aggressive style like you're doing with this bird is called manning. Mm-hmm. And that's, like I said, just getting the bird used to being around people. Mm-hmm. And through that process, they, you feed them as much as you can, but you're also trying to lower their weight typically. With a bird that most of the time that you catch, they're heavier in weight than what you would like and kind of the name of the game in falconry is manage their hunger and you do that through weight control right and and that i think can be easily misconstrued as oh well they're just starving their birds um until they are so hungry that they cooperate and that's really not the case um what what happens is is you have this bird who is hopefully uh, doing well and um, in fit condition and probably uh, what we would call fairly heavy. And you take them into captivity and then um, 
as, let's see, how do I put this? As their hunger increases, their fear of you decreases. And at some point in that process, those two, uh, oh, whatever. Parts, parts, parts of the equation. Yeah, meet. And at some point, they have to say, okay, this guy who I am quite afraid of hasn't hurt me yet. And he hasn't tried to kill me or eat me yet. And all he's doing is offering me food. So I'm going to have to take my eye off him for a second and reach down and eat this piece of food. And then guess what? They reach down, they eat the piece of food, nothing happens to them. And eventually they start to warm up to the idea of food being available on demand because uh, raptors live a very hard life and... Um, a lot of things kill them. Other raptors, uh, telephone lines, power poles, um, running into windows, getting hit by cars, uh, pesticides, poison. All poisons. kinds of predators or yep, coyotes, bobcats. Everybody's after them. And I'm not sure if this number is exactly correct, but um, I've heard the number of 75% mortality rate within their first year of life uh, many times. Um, and, and I think that's a, probably a reasonable estimate. So, um, oh, where was I going? Uh, so you're actually uh, improving their odds of survival by taking them into captivity. Um, so, oh yeah, you were talking about weight management. So mm -hmm. we decrease their weight, their fear of us decreases, their hunger increases, it meets in the middle. And eventually they have to accept your presence and accept the food that you're offering them. And once that happens, you're well on your way to forming a mutually beneficial partnership with a wild animal, which, in my opinion, is one of the coolest things in the entire world. It's definitely very rewarding. It's played a major role in my life, and it's something I couldn't be happier to be a part of. I guess we didn't really talk about... Uh, hunting with my bird mm -mm. yeah either so like I said this bird I've been hunting a little over a week and my schedule is pretty tight and so I haven't I've been hawking a lot on my lunch break so where I've got an hour and that's not a whole lot of time and so I'm pretty limited on localities of where I can uh, actually get to to hunt in that hour so <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of nice to come up here to an area that I know where game is at and have an idea of how things are going to go just based off of previous experiences. And on the family farm here, mom and dad had um, some work done where a lot of the brush was bulldozed out and sprayed and some of the less desirable trees were cut down and piled into brush piles and stuff. So things have actually changed here some since I've hunted it. And we thought about going back to the spot that we took Jim's bird to, but I decided, you know what, it'd be really cool to catch a rabbit, uh, first rabbit for this bird off the family farm. Something uh, that I thought would be a, a cool experience to share with Graham and Jim here. And so we turned the bird out behind the horse pasture here, which uh, typically is like the best spot on the farm. 
It used to be about 10 yards wide by, oh, probably 100, 150 yards, maybe a little more, blackberry thicket. And when I say thicket, you can't, I mean, it's head high in some spots. But it was just patchy enough that a couple guys could work through it, and you'd usually have a couple chases within just that patch at least. And that's all gone. And so we turned the bird out, and she takes a really high perch in a tree right off the bat and kind of moves off away from us a little ways. Now, I had heard something flush, but I didn't see anything. And so I think she kind of saw that there was something over there and was moving that way to investigate. And then as we work our way towards her, we end up flushing the covey of quail. Mm-hmm. And they only went 40 yards. Yeah, not very far. Not very far at all. Mm-hmm. She didn't chase them mm-hmm. initially, which doesn't surprise me. Quail are a very tall order for a red tail to catch. Yeah, they're pretty speedy. Yeah, it's not impossible, but if you don't catch them sitting on the ground or if they're not coming right underneath the bird, they're not going to catch them. Certain right. birds are able to do that. They have the speed to catch them whenever they're flying and getting really going, but not red tails. And if you think when you're out quail hunting and you have a covey rise around you and they blast off, if you think they move fast then, you should see how fast they move with a hawk over top of them or some one close by. Mm-hmm. They have a whole nother gear that most people don't ever get to see. It is yep. incredible the amount of distance that they can put on in, in a short amount of time. But so we flushed the covey and Graham said, hey, you want to see if she'll chase one of these? That'd be cool. And they actually, where they flushed to was the tip of the pond there. And this uh, pond right uh, where she was sitting or real close to it is the stand that I've killed uh, a lot of really nice deer out of there. And Graham heads over and starts working the brush. And he gets a couple of birds out that kind of fly, I mean, about 10 yards from one brush pile to another. And I don't know if the bird saw him or not, but didn't make any move on him. And then as Graham is kind of working that cover, the bird is up on the dam of the pond, way up in a tree. And she's looking over, she starts bobbing, and then she bails out of the tree. And Graham, I didn't really see much past that, so you have to kind of tell you. Well, she came in hard, like she saw him on the ground. But then at the last maybe five, ten feet of the stoop, she like put the brakes on uh, and just kind of landed on the ground. And then I could hear the quail vocalizing. I could hear them talking Mm -hmm. um, like they're nervous. So I think probably what happened is she caught them moving on the ground and decided to take a shot at them. And then as she was getting there, they either laid down or just like froze and i mean you can imagine uh trying to pick out a motionless quail on a forest floor um and so i think they just froze and those last few seconds she lost track of them and couldn't see them and so ended up landing um and uh and then she kind of looked around for a minute and then got back up in the tree and um you flushed a couple more yeah. after that, mm-hmm. which she ignored. 
Right. Which doesn't surprise me. Once they're flying, I mean, no. she has no hope of catching up to them. So right. that, that doesn't surprise me at all. I don't have a red tail to catch quail. I'd, right. No, you wouldn't hardly expect one to even try. It was, mm-hmm. it was interesting to see her make the move that she did. Yeah, mm-hmm. which kind of reminds me of hawk and quail under a red tail with your dad. There was yeah. a time out behind the, uh, you guys' house there in Fairfax mm-hmm. that uh, we got a covey up that was a surprise, and your bird, I don't remember if it was your bird or your dad's bird, mm-hmm. but it was one of you two's red tail, and she chased it and almost caught it. It landed in a tree, and mm. she almost caught it in the tree, <laughs> and then she pulled up, and mm-hmm. the quail put in. Mm. And I started hitting brush, and I saw it in the brush pile. There was, I don't know, probably six or eight inches of snow on the ground, and that thing was stock still. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm like less than 10 feet away from the thing. Mm-hmm. And I about had to club it over the head to get it to flush. <laughs> and it yep. flushed, and I think she ended up chasing, but it, it knew that the bird was there. And that was one of the times where I was like, holy cow, can they move. Yeah. Yeah. So back to hunting with my bird. So she went up in a, uh, took another high perch. Impressively high perch. We were commenting <laughs> yeah. on that during the hunt. I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen a, a red tail that would absolutely stay in the very tip tops of the trees like, like your it's, bird does. It's interesting. It's I, a wonderful is, thing. This is the first time I've ever had a bird do it, and it's almost to a fault where she'll kind of move out of position if there's a higher tree. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little ways away. Sure. But... She'll get it figured out. And today, she made some really big strides. I was really impressed. We're kind of working along through the woods. And she, when you're hunting along with a red tail, or any bird for that matter, that's following along in the trees, typically you want them as close to you or ahead of where you're working as possible. Because you're most of the time you're flushing game, I shouldn't say most of the time, quite frequently you're flushing game ahead of where you're working through the brush and the cover. And so they have a really good chance of catching something if they're close to you, the thing that's scaring the rabbits. Now, if you walk past a rabbit, a lot of times, as soon as you're clear of whatever their circle of their little danger zone is, they'll try and squirt out the back and get somewhere safer. And so I've had birds that would catch them that way. Sure, but most of the time they'll flush in front of you. Right, right. And so she... Um, we call that following along is whenever Mm -hmm. they move from tree to tree as you're working through an area. She hadn't really done that much. We hadn't really produced that much game. This is the longest hunt that she'd ever been on. Like I said, I've got some major time constraints in my life right now. And she moved up pretty quickly. So she moved from one tree to another closer to us. And I was like, oh, sweet. But she kind of came over soaring and me and Jim were talking about is man if I didn't have that telemetry on her mm-hmm. I would have been real nervous mm-hmm. and reaching for the lure well I didn't know that you had telemetry on her and <laughs> I was real nervous for you <laughs> so speaking on telemetry a little bit it's a radio transmitter mm-hmm. that you put on the bird that sends out a, a frequency a beep mm-hmm. every what like second and a half or so yeah and then you have a receiver, a handheld receiver that is a directional receiver so that you can tell which 
way your bird is. Right. And there's different techniques that uh, you can use to triangulate and find uh, the exact location of your bird if it takes off. Mm-hmm. Or if it goes and catches something that you don't see, which happens sometimes. Right. Uh, which is one of the reasons why we fly with bells on mm-hmm. our birds. So that it makes them easier to find whenever those kinds of things are going on. But I do, I'm I flying this bird with a transmitter, which is the first time I've ever flown a red tail with a transmitter. And, and I'm, I'm glad I am because it, it really freed me up today to be like, you know what, just let, see what happens. Mm-hmm. Because I know that there's a good chance I'll be able to find her if something does happen. And I want to give her the benefit of the doubt that she's not trying to leave. She's just kind of doing her thing. And it worked out really good. Right. And she followed along in the woods with us, and we ended up getting up one rabbit that she chased and missed. And we didn't see exactly where that one went. I didn't even, I saw the first half of the stoop, which the stoop is what we call the uh, the dive. The dive, yeah, towards the, the prey animal. Mm-hmm. And then. She, I mean, she kept falling along in the woods, which was awesome, and got into perfect position over this brush pile of, was that black or honey locust? Honey locust. Honey locust, okay. Is black locust an actual tree? Yeah, Robinia okay. pseudoacacia. Okay, Mr. Forestry over here. I, I didn't know. We always called them black locusts, but I'm not. I, no, these are honey locusts. Okay. Hmm. Are there okay. black locusts here in Missouri? Uh, there is in the southern part of the state. I don't actually know how far north their range extends gotcha uh, but the <clears throat> black locust has thorns that come off in pairs that are only about a half inch to an inch long whereas okay. honey locusts can have thorns that are you know can be six to eight inches long yeah. but the unique identifying <clears throat> characteristic is that the thorns are are uh, forked mm-hmm. mm. which is where it gets its name gladitsia tricanthos tri meaning three of course and canthos pointed Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. So if you've never been around a locust tree, they're the they, worst. They are certainly nasty. not something you want to climb. No. I had no. a honey locust thorn embedded in my toe for a month. <laughs> that was pretty I remember that. That was a bad little One, abscess. Yeah. I pulled a, 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 a locust thorn out of Jim inside of his knee. Oh, like, it was yeah, you talk about a sight. I don't even I don't know if we want to talk about that. Here. <laughs> so we were out. We were out hunting, and and I had a a honey locust sapling snap back toward me and broke a thorn off of my knee, and I I absolutely could not walk. I had to drop trow in the middle of the field, and borrow Nick's knife to dig that thing out. It was mm. it, it was awful. It was pretty pretty gnarly. And I mean, we pull when we say it was embedded, it was in every bit of an inch long thorn, completely into his leg yeah and yeah that was that was an experience but uh i was just glad it was that long when it came out because here i was squalling and carrying on <laughs> and i thought sure in the world this thing's gonna come out it's only gonna be maybe a quarter inch and i'm gonna look like a big old sissy <laughs> oh man but yeah if you've never been around <laughs> locust trees they are real i mean they're a pain in the butt because they really, you can get seriously hurt on them because their thorns are incredibly stiff and tough, but they're an incredible tree. Really. They are super resilient, very tough to kill. Mm -hmm. Their, their wood is incredibly dense. 
And this, this property that my family owns here was logged at one point in time for walnut. And then cattle were on it for a, a good amount of time. And there, that makes up a large percentage of the trees on the farm, which I, I think they're, they're definitely common here, but they're more common in our woods than I've noticed than most other woods in this uh, stands of timber in this area. Right. Well, they're, they're what you would call an early successional species, meaning that after a, after a disruption like a, you know, it could be a forest fire or in this case a logging event, uh, they're one of the first species to, to come in and really... Uh, try to colonize the area. Mm. Uh, and eventually, they get outcompeted by more desirable trees like oaks and that sort of thing. Gotcha. But uh, in the early stages, it, you know, it's common for a stand to be dominated by early successional species like that. Gotcha. Mm. Yeah, and they're they're cool trees, but they are nasty trees, and their limbs and uh, a few. I'd say they were younger trees trunks are what made up this brush pile that the bird was is perched over and hunting the farm enough i know there's a rabbit in that brush pile and i start working the brush pile and i call down to graham and jim who were a little ways away working up the creek and they come up and help us uh, help me hit that brush pile and i'm on one side graham climbs up on top which is really what I think produced the rabbit probably, and then Jim was working the other side. I know it was absolutely grand, but you know we beat on that thing for I don't know a couple minutes at, at least. It mm-hmm. seemed like forever beating on that pile, and nothing came out, and nothing came out, and finally, Graham had enough of that. He got right <laughs> up in the middle of it and started hopping up and down. Yeah, and uh, sure enough, Bunny comes squirting out the other side. Yeah, and then I I got to see the beginning of the stoop. Or she pitched, I mean, darn near straight down, wings tied to the body, getting some good momentum going. And then I didn't see the rest of it, Jim. You did, so you can describe that. Oh, it was it was really cool. I don't, I, I, from where I was, because I was behind the bird, I could not tell if, if she just came in at a low angle or if got a hold of the rabbit and the rabbit drug her. But that bird's tail drug the ground for, I, I thought it was six feet, but then when we got over there, there was fur pulled and, and laying on the ground I don't know 10 or 12 foot from where they ended up mm-hmm. but she she scooted along the ground a good long ways it, it was kind of like watching a, a oh one of those big jumbo jets come in for a landing you know they just come in low nice and easy and it seems like their tail drags the ground forever mm-hmm. before they actually touch down yeah she definitely pulled a bunch of fur off of it which makes me think that she grabbed it by the butt end and got carried mm-hmm. a did little a ways mm-hmm. yeah. and that rabbit Whenever I walked up, it had a lot of kick, and it actually kicked my hand, which I've never been kicked by one. It it was surprising how much power that thing had, and it's interesting when a rabbit gets grabbed by a red tail. There's varying levels of their response. Sometimes they just are docile and just accept their fate. Other times they fight like heck, kick the bird, try and get them off. And sometimes they're successful. I've had birds that have a rabbit good. You think they're going to hold on to it and they get their butt, you know, just something happens and they slip off or whatever. But this particular one, I, I think, had some oomph in it. It wasn't going to take it laying down. And so when she grabbed onto it, it kept going, I think. Well, I'll tell you what, after our experiences today, I'd much rather take on a, a, 
A cottontail that's fighting for its life than a four-pound fox squirrel. <laughs> How about a 15-pound raccoon? Yeah, no, I, I'm not sure what I'd do in that situation. I wasn't sure either. <laughs> <laughs> that was not a fun day. That was, I had a bird that, uh, she was in, incredibly successful at catching rabbits and squirrels. But she also had an affinity for grabbing pretty much anything that ran through the woods that was smaller than a deer. And so we, that season we caught two possums and a raccoon. And yeah, I, it was weird. I was actually taking a guy out with me, first time he's ever seen falconry. And we're getting to like one of the best spots on the farm at that time, thinking, okay, here we go. Let's, we're gonna hit this brush pile and get a rabbit out for her. And this is back in the day when there uh, was, the rabbits were on the decline. And so you'd go two hours and maybe get a couple flushes if you were lucky. Now it's not that way, fortunately. But bird just disappears. And I'm looking around, I'm going, what in the world happened? I don't see her, I don't hear her, nothing. Sat there for probably two or three minutes, nothing, nothing. Finally I hear bells real faint. And so we kind of figured out where she was, go down there, and she has a hold of it, luckily, it wasn't a, that big of a raccoon. It, I say 15 pounds. I don't think it was that big. It was a full-grown raccoon, but not anything like a big boar or anything. It was 15. It was 50, huh? <laughs> but big enough where it was like, I mean, she's got a hold of it. It's pawing her in the face and grabbing a hold of her, and she's kind of staying up on top of it. And we ended up, I think how we dispatched it, I think I ended up just taking my knife and getting putting a point to a uh, stick and getting in there and dispatching it because it's not like you can just call your bird off of it and you know if you if your bird gets grabbed or your dog gets grabbed by your bird which happens sometimes you can there's a way you can rip the bird off the dog and and keep the dog safe with a wild raccoon, you can't exactly do the same thing because that thing is like just as likely to turn around and come after you as well, it sure. is to run off. Mm -hmm. So didn't really have much of a choice there. I had to dispatch it and leave it lay. But yeah, that was that was an interesting day for sure. I'm glad it nothing ended up happening where the bird got hurt. But yeah, you get into get into some wild stuff. Falconry. Mm-hmm. Um, so. What do we got planned for tomorrow? Well, I believe the plan is to go out uh, hawk trapping and banding, which um, what that means is I'm a sub-permittee uh, under a bird bander. Um, and so... For the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, we go out and trap hawks, and then we put a little aluminum band on them with a specific serial number, and then there's also a phone number on that band, and that way, after we release that bird, uh, if someone hits it on the road or someone finds it in their chicken coop or, or if that bird is ever encountered again by a human being, then they can find that band, call that phone number, and and uh, report um, where they found it. 
and then there's you know some form of data collected because I trapped it and put the band there and then you find out where it was seen again and I've had two recoveries uh, on red-tailed hawks that I banded one of them uh, was hit by a I trapped it in northwest Missouri and it was hit by a car I believe in um, Saskatchewan and then I had another one that I banded in northwest Missouri and it was actually caught by another bird bander um, up in Saskatchewan and so when he called the bird banding lab they gave him my information uh, or, or my the the uh, the uh, guy with the banding permit they gave him uh, his information and so he was contacted and and so we were able to compare pictures of that bird from two different years uh, so that was that was pretty cool to see because uh, a lot of times you catch them and you they molt once a year and they change um, their feathers and so a lot of times you catch a bird and you wonder what it's going to look like the next year and in that case we actually got to see how that bird changed from year to year so that was pretty neat and that's one of the cool things about falconry too is you have the option to molt a bird out some people do some people don't but it is cool to see year to year what individuals look like especially the the subspecies that uh tend to have very drastically different color variations in them from the, what most people think of when they think of a passage red tail. But tomorrow should be fun. Yeah. I'm always uh, always down to do some trapping. And we've got some other falconers from down around Kansas City that I think are going to come up and spend some time. Might get to do some hawking if the birds uh, aren't too heavy from having the success that they did. Uh, today and mm -hmm. maybe we'll run into some some cool stuff it's the time of year where a lot of the migrants have come through but we're we get a lot of the different stuff than what we normally see like prairie falcons and the occasional peregrine or goshawk I did see a goshawk this year yeah so should be fun concluding remarks Jim you got anything no, I, you know, after the day that we had, I just, I'm, I'm just glad I still have all of my fingers and, <laughs> you know. Sands a few holes. Really feel very fortunate to have got to um, spend the day with you guys. It's beautiful country up here. I've, you know, I've driven through this area, but I've never, never actually got to get out and really experience it. It was, it was really, it was a beautiful day today. It was crystal clear skies and about, I don't know, what was it, 48 degrees or so? Somewhere around there. Yeah, nice and cool, and uh, and we had plenty of game, and, uh, you know, the birds cooperated, uh, the game cooperated. It just, uh, you know, <laughs> certainly not every hunting trip that, that everything comes together the way it's supposed to, and, uh, you know, it, it's, of course, it's enjoyable when things don't come together the way they're supposed to, but it's certainly more enjoyable when they do. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so it was a great day. Yeah. Graham, concluders? Uh, well, I just finished um, the second of six modules of nursing school uh, this past week, and so it was pretty nice to finish up that 
and come home and uh, see somebody else fly their birds because the thing about flying your own bird is it's it's pretty high stress. You know, you're um, you're definitely running at about a I don't know a seven or an eight on the stress scale, and it doesn't take much to push you up to a ten. But if it's not your bird and you don't have anything to lose, then it's pure enjoyment. So true enough. I got to just show up and watch the show, and and the show was good. So I'm content. Yeah, I think when you're flying your birds, you're more like a nine and a half. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty intense, especially if that bird has long pointy wings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When you're flying falcons, it's it's the scale. I mean, they can cover such a long ways real fast. Mm-hmm. And, and so the scale that you're playing on is, is quite a bit bigger. Not to mention the investment of time and effort into those birds yeah. is exponentially more than what most people spend on birds like red tails, in, yeah. from what I've seen. Yeah. I'd say that's true for the most part. So, But yeah, I got to just show up and... And have a good time and have somebody else make me dinner, so I'm happy. You got some asabuco in the in the oven and gonna cook up some whitetail that uh, came off the family farm here to go along with it. So I'm glad to share the bounty of this place with a couple of good friends. And that's that's my concluding thought is just thank you guys for coming. And you know, being being here in Maryville, it's an emotional experience for me. I, I spent a lot of time becoming the man I am today in this area, and there's a lot, uh, a lot of great memories in this place. I've been very fortunate to live here, to have this property, to have access to game, to pursue, and to explore my passions. It's 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 something I love sharing with people that appreciate it and seeing. Seeing that appreciation on you guys' faces today really means a lot to me. Right on. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank uh, you. Anytime. We'll definitely have to do it again. Yeah. Yeah, it's been good. So. All right. Thanks for listening. Yep. Good night.